in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy for our Old Testament lesson this morning, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15. Here Moses, under inspiration of the Spirit, gives instruction on how the people of God are to care for one another, particularly those in great need. Here to be seen a particular way of caring for them once every seven years. We'll see that Paul makes uh, allusion to this passage in our sermon text this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of that release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it to his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, speaking to the people of God. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, just as he has promised. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Rather, you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cries to the Lord against you, and you be found guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be begrudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land." Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. And of course, as we had read just a few moments ago, Psalm 112 reflects on this very passage and what the righteous man looks like in terms of caring for the poor and the needy. Now, turning with me uh, for our New Testament lesson, uh, back to 2 Corinthians. Uh, we've taken a brief hiatus for the summer, uh, looking at the fruit of the Spirit, but now we return to Paul's uh, letter to the church of Corinth. And as you recall, Paul has already spent a great deal of time talking about this diaconal relief that is being collected among all the churches among the Mediterranean uh, to be given uh, for the church in Jerusalem, which is undergoing a massive famine. That's the particular context within which we find ourselves. We will uh, give attention uh, to this whole chapter this morning, but in particular focus on verses 6 to the end of the chapter. Here Paul kind of gives us a, uh, a summary uh, of what we uh, have already dealt with in previous sermons. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, that is the churches of Thessalonica, Philippi, Colossae, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Again, this is a big collection that's been uh, kind of accumulating over the course of over a year. 
and your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and they find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and, remain, uh, and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not and as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Just as it is written, he has distributed freely He has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. There is that passage from Psalm 112, again, reflecting on Deuteronomy 15. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce the thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this, his inexpressible gift. This is God's holy word. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, as we consider so much of what Paul uh, says uh, to your church this morning, we ask that you would give us uh, humble hearts uh, with ears uh, and a will ready and eager to do what you have commanded us to do and to do cheerfully. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't have uh, the best memory if any of y'all uh, get to know me for any extended period of time. And so what we find is in, uh, inevitably every year, my dad always uh, gently uh, nudges me uh, the beginning of every November. Hey, Charles, don't forget your mother's birthday is coming up. And it's not that I don't love my mom. By the way, he does that from, uh, with respect to my brother as well. Uh, holidays such as Christmas, you know, those big things that everybody pays attention to, I remain somewhat oblivious. It's not that I don't love my mother. It's not that I forget what day she was born. She was born November 18th, 1951. Celebrates the same birthday as Mickey Mouse. Not that that matters to any of y'all. But I remember what the day is, I just don't remember what today is. The wires get crossed. So I'll wake up and I'll think, all right, today is Tuesday, but not realizing that it's my mom's birthday. So my dad gives me this gentle reminder every year. And I think some people might see reminders like this, which for me happen quite frequently to be somewhat overbearing, but not for me. It is not overbearing because these are reminders that I greatly need. My dad reminds me not because 
Uh, He's trying to give me a guilt trip because he knows how oblivious I am to the realities of time. I think it's easy to get frustrated with Paul when we're reading through portions of 2 Corinthians. You look at Paul, you go, all right, Paul, two chapters on diaconal giving. Really? (laughs) This is kind of frustrating. You're, you're, You're beating a dead horse, Paul. But we see here in these opening verses of chapter 9, Paul's concern is that Corinth doesn't forget. That's that's what he's saying. He says, guys, I'm saying this. I I know you love this, but I'm doing this to remind you so that when we come to collect the offering, we don't look like a bunch of nincompoops. That's that's the point of verses 1 to 6. So he sent Titus and two other brothers uh, who have been uh, elected to collect these funds that that Corinth has already promised to give for the poor in Jerusalem, right? The church in Jerusalem is suffering a massive famine. And if they forget, it's going to look really, really awkward when these church officers from other congregations show up and knock on Corinth's door. Paul very simply says here in these opening verses, I don't want you to end up with egg on your face. So Paul is simply writing to remind them, but he also wants to make sure that they do not misunderstand what it is that Paul is getting at, as we have seen, Corinth is so likely to do, misunderstanding Paul at every uh, 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 twist and turn. So Paul closes this particular section of his letter by giving some advice and giving. And that advice regards not how much to give, but rather how to give and what kind of investment such giving will reap. So Paul lays down for the church two particular principles using the metaphor of sowing and reaping. You see that metaphor of sowing uh, being the dominant feature of verses 6 to 9 and then reaping in verses 10 to 15. Sowing and reaping. I think everybody's familiar with the story of Johnny Appleseed. He's the great folk hero of every elementary school class I've ever known. Everybody knows him either from the stories, from the Disney cartoon. Here is a guy who has a bunch of apple seeds in his sash, a man who was a living legend in his own time, just going up and down the streets according to the legend, just scattering seed here, there, and everywhere. And for anybody who has ever read anything about who the real Johnny Appleseed was, though that might be a slight exaggeration, it surely uh, gives us a proper image of the generosity that this man expressed in real life. Now, on the one hand, you might look at what Johnny Appleseed does as he just kind of tosses seed uh, everywhere you go, up and down the byways, and you think, how frivolous, how much of a waste is all that seed? Well, I want me to consider the other extreme, the other alternative. Right? You don't have to be a farmer to know that you cannot grow apple trees without sowing apple seeds. I think it's a basic principle. The more trees that you want, the more seed you will need to sow. And so if you plant just one apple seed, hopefully you'll get one apple tree. If that seed is not uh, uh, eaten by a bird, so long as there's not a drought, so long as the seed gets plenty of nutrients and so on and so forth. I think we're all reminded of a very basic uh, thing that I think even... um, people who grow houseplants and tend houseplants at their own home. If you have a garden, you understand this, that if you sow sparingly, 
you will reap sparingly. But if you're like Johnny Appleseed, tossing seed left and right, sure, maybe not every seed will sprout and blossom, but you will reap a higher yield than the Scrooge who has only planted that one seed. This, I think, is Paul's whole point here in chapters 8 and 9 of this letter. The principle that he lays down, that of sowing and reaping. In short, we could put it like this. This is the Charles Williams paraphrase. Don't skimp on the diaconal fund. Everything Paul has set up to this point still applies. This is not Paul trying to treat the offering as a tax. So we already heard Paul read, this is not an exaction. You know, you go to some places and they, they treat these things as a tax. But rather, Paul says, you shouldn't think of this in those terms. You should not be giving compuls- uh, under compulsion, but willing and cheerfully. That's what you see there at the end of verse 5. See, the manner of our giving is important, and that's what really uh, the point that Paul begins to drive home in the closing portion of this extended narrative, this section on giving for the diaconal fund. You know, God does not love a frumpy giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And this is not simply a New Testament concept. and something that comes straight from the mouth of Moses under inspiration of the Spirit himself. I think so many of us have had our view of Deuteronomy ruined by the Pharisees. To where anything that we read from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, we automatically cringe, particularly those imperatives. And we think, oh, that's just legalism. But when you read the apostles, that's not exactly the case. Yes, we need to read the Old Testament in light of the advent of Christ. The fact that Christ has come, a significant shift has in fact taken place. Paul is going to get at this in greater detail uh, next week when we begin chapter 10. But it doesn't mean that you just can now cut the book of Deuteronomy out of your book and toss it in the garbage. I actually find that Deuteronomy is the third most quoted book of the Old Testament in the new. Moses' law was God's law, and God gave his law to establish justice for a particular time and a particular people in a particular place, but now it lays down general equitable principles that is now applied to the life of the church in various ways. And of course, we need to listen carefully to the apostles and how to understand how we should read our Old Testament now that Christ has come. So when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, we're given a picture of what true righteousness looks like, a law that was intended to bring peace and joy. And in Deuteronomy 15, a law is given to the people of Israel, the redeemed, that every seven years there is to be a remission of all debts in Israel. You think about that just for a moment, how great would that be to live under the law of Moses? think, aha, no more student debt, no more house mortgages. After seven years, you know, there is a canceling of debts, not for the foreigner, not for those outside of the covenant. This is something that applies to the people of God. I think for the debtor, this is really good news, but imagine what it would be like to be a lender among the people of God. Can you imagine 
how it might make you somewhat nervous if somebody comes up to you in year six and asks for a loan. Think of the stink eye that you might give them. Why are you asking me for money now? Next year is the year of remission of debt. All debts will be cleared next year. And so there is going to be that temptation for the lender not to extend his hand, rather to in his heart, even if he gives, he gives begrudgingly. And so Moses now speaks to that disposed heart. I think a heart that we can all relate to, even if we're not in that exact position in this day and age. Moses says to the people, you shall give to him that one who is in need freely. And your heart shall not be begrudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open your hand to your brother and to the needy and to the poor in your land. Before we kind of shrug this passage off and go, oh, well, that's just so Old Testament. We must recognize that Paul is using Deuteronomy 15 as a paradigm and a picture for giving here as he now applies this to the life not of the nation of Israel, but to the church, even here a Gentile church. Remember Paul's overarching argument that we've seen as we've been considering this letter uh, since the beginning of the year. The new covenant has come and it has surpassed the old covenant in greater glory. It looks different, yes, in many ways. But the way in which it looks different is in fact far better. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is it that this particular principle looks better than Deuteronomy 15? Well, we see Paul takes Deuteronomy 15 and Psalm 112 and applies it to the diaconal relief that is to be given in this particular context to the church suffering from famine in Jerusalem. And yet we find here that the release from such a burden is to be given not simply once every seven years, but once every seven days as Paul is calling upon the church to take up that collection once a week. So what we saw at the end of Romans and at the end of 1 Corinthians, if you recall, when we looked at those other passages where Paul is laying out that broader picture of the diaconal relief, this is a collection that is given from among the people of God for the people of God in need. There is a heightening of giving that is given here, and the way in which the people's aid is uh, 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 met is through the taking up of the diaconal offering. In other words, the law of Moses exhibits a pattern and a principle that should be seen and practiced in the life of the church. That the church here is called to care for its own materially as a picture of the deeper spiritual reality that is seen in the forgiveness of sins. That is what that seven-year remission of debt signifies. Why is it that the Lord says when he instructs his disciples in the Lord's Prayer that we are to pray not forgive us our sins, but forgive us our debts? Of course, debt's meaning, it's, it's, it's a picture of sin. But then the question and the response is, forgive us our debts as we too have forgiven our debtors. 
there's a, 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 an intimate connection where we're not simply just separating the spiritual and the material. Remember, the Lord has established um, two broad offices in the church. We might say three, you got the minister, but then on the one hand, you have the minister and the elders who provide for the spiritual well-being of the people of God, but then you have the diaconate, which cares for the material well-being of the people of God. Not making sure that everybody has a 50-inch screen TV, that's not the point, but making sure that everybody's needs are met. It's to remind us that we have a good shepherd who cares for us in both body and soul. That's the point. This diaconal relief fund is an expression of that giving to remind us the great reality that just as the church cares for us in our physical needs, so we have been cared for in our spiritual needs with the forgiveness of sins. Christ cares for his sheep in both body and soul. So the diaconal collection is the means whereby the church provides for the poor among them. And so Paul says, give, don't hold back. Right? This is not a collection that's being taken up for the pastor. Right? This is a collection that's being taken up for actually uh, a people that this congregation has actually never even seen face-to-face for the most part, if any. Paul has, of course, seen some of them. But they're giving in some ways to, to a faceless people. But people who they recognize these bonds uh, of, of union and communion run much deeper than family members because we have been bound together through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says the point isn't simply to give, as if I'm simply, you know, you know, like Sally Struthers on one of those TV ads late at night trying to guilt trip you into giving. Rather, the encouragement is for you to give cheerfully. The emphasis is on the manner of the giving. Don't give begrudgingly. Rather, give as one whose giving reflects an enlarged heart a heart that knows the forgiveness of our own spiritual debt and now seeks to relieve the material pressures of fellow believers. We are not called to give casually or impulsively. Rather, Paul says to give thoughtfully. As he says here, as each man has determined to give in his own heart. Cheerfulness reflects being made a part of God's gracious covenant. To know that this is not simply an assembly like coming to a movie theater where you, you, you walk in, you sit down, you get your bag of popcorn, you, you listen to a, you know, a talk for half an hour, and then you go about your own way for the rest of the week. There is a real communion bond that takes place here in the life of the church, and that includes uh, not simply getting together and having a good time at somebody's house on a Friday evening, but also uh, really caring for those in need. And so cheerfulness reflects the heart that has been attuned to the grace of God. If we aren't cheerful, I think all that's left is ingratitude. And as we're reminded, ingratitude is the very reason that Israel died in the wilderness. You read Hebrews or Psalm 95. It reminds us of those things where the Lord swore, Hebrews chapter 3, and he will not rest. These people will die on account of their ingratitude. We, I think, treat ingratitude as a light sin, a socially acceptable sin. And yet, it is a grave sin in the sight of God. So the Lord calls us to give cheerfully. But the question is, what is it that's being given 
Is it just money? What is it that's being sown? I think we should point out here that Paul is very careful not to, uh, to lay out a particular percentage or dollar amount. So I've been very hesitant to refer to this as a tithe. Paul never calls it a tithe. Paul's not asking for a particular percentage. Rather, the focus is on the attitude of the heart. And so again, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that is being sown here? And with that, what exactly are we expecting to reap? You know, you watch kind of the prosperity gospel preachers on the TV, and they'll tell you things like this, so money to get money, you give in order to get. Uh, Not exactly what Paul is getting at here. I remember when I was young, I I totally misunderstand what uh, the preacher, I don't think this is the preacher that I senator's fault, it's my own fault, it's a nine-year-old boy, hearing, if you give, you're going to get back. And I go, great, well, I got $3.00. I would really like more than $3, so I'm going to give all $3 into the offering plate. And I remember on the, on the drive home from church, I said, Dad, I said, I gave $3. Mom, Dad, three bucks. My whole allowance I gave to the offering plate. My dad says, good job. I said, all right, so when am I going to get, when am I going to get my $9? That's, what are you talking about? And I was in for a rude awakening. It didn't happen like that. I thought that it was you put money in and boom, everything just kind of automatically comes back, and I was really upset that I didn't get $9 in return. Still haunts me to this day, apparently. But what we see here is what's going, uh, what is it that's not being sown? And Paul is not talking about the, mon- the monetary amount that we put in, per se. Paul's not saying, hey, guys, you're struggling with poverty, put in some money. Next thing you know, you're going to have a nice you know, boat on the lake, Big old mansion, the nicest cult money can buy. It's not what he says. Again, we turn to the Scripture to understand the paradigm and the picture that is being drawn for us. Hosea chapter 10, Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. So we don't do this to earn righteousness. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying here, that, hey, uh, you're supposed to give, so if you give, the Lord will be real happy to you. He'll give you the, the, the two thumbs up from heaven, as it were, and you could go on about your day. Again, to, to preach like that would to preach some manipulative way to try to get you to give uh, under compulsion. And that is the very thing that Paul is seeking to avoid. That's why Paul cites Psalm 112 here. Now, I think we have to take a step back again. We have to realize how deeply grounded Paul's own practical instructions are found in the Old Testament. When we read the Psalter, there's even a shape and a shaping to the arrangement of the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 111 speaks of God's manifested righteousness in uh, the midst of creation as he gives bountifully for those who fear him both Uh, spiritually and materially. But then Psalm 112, the very next psalm, the focus is not on God's bountiful righteousness manifested among the poor. Rather, it is on the blessed man, the righteous man who manifests his righteousness by giving to the poor. Here's a man who imitates God in bountiful giving according to the means that he himself has been given. He has distributed freely, Paul quotes 
from Psalm 112, it's not speaking here of God. It is speaking of the righteous man. This man distributes freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. In other words, the psalmist's point and Paul's point here is that you could tell a righteous man by his cheerful and generous disposition. I don't think this simply applies to money. I'm, I'm thinking even in my own life this past week, I'd like to thank everybody who's uh, uh, taken the time to bring meals. You know, my dad was in the hospital earlier this week, and then all of a sudden I get a call saying, hey, we'd like to provide meals for you. And I, and I say, okay, you know, sounds good. I'm not going to say no. Uh, uh, but then I see the meal train sign up, and it's like this bountiful feast every night. And then like after the second night of eating, I turn to my dad, who's home from the hospital. I said, dad, I said, you should go to the hospital more often. This is awesome. I don't think he appreciated that as much as I did. But what we see is an expression of love and service among the people of God uh, that, that reaps in bountiful ways more than me and my dad uh, could ever really need. Um, you know, it's just as easy for us to go to Taco Bell. Uh, but here's, here's the people of God saying, hey, we want to give you, a, hey, if you want to give me a Cornish hen, great. I got a Cornish hen the other night. And then I got fried shrimp and rice the other night. And then I got meatloaf the other night. I've got a list. I'm looking at the menu over the next few nights. This is great. It's more than I ever need. It's, 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 it, it, it supersedes even uh, uh, the, uh, the need that we had. But such is a picture of the gospel, isn't it? God does not simply give us, you know, you know, you're in debt, and so the Lord gets you out of debt, spiritually speaking. But it's a superabundant righteousness. We've not simply been forgiven of sin, but we have been imputed with Christ's own righteousness himself. We've been declared to be as righteous as God's only son. It's it's more than just the forgiveness of sins. It's actually being declared to be righteous. And our giving is a reflection of that great spiritual truth. So for the one who has been forgiven of his spiritual debt, he looks for ways to show, in small ways, uh, the same type of grace that our Lord has shown to us. It is an expression of the righteousness that he has in Christ. For those who have been forgiven, it spills over in our concern for others. And so we are called to give cheerfully that the burden does not fall on one individual to care for everybody in need, but it's a burden that falls upon the whole church. Remember, in chapter 8, Paul used that image of the manna in the wilderness. The Lord has given bountifully to all, but as everybody collects, some might have a little bit more one day than the other, so they give uh, uh, that uh, excess that they have to the one who has a need to show that everybody has actually been provided for, and it teaches us to care for one another. This is a way more gracious venue of God's giving than any health or wealth salesman or Bible preacher could ever uh, imagine because the the, the prosperity uh, profiteer guy that you see on TV is only preaching about getting for himself. What Paul's concern here is ensuring that every member of the congregation is cared for in times of need. And so we sow not to reap a financial investment, but something far greater we see here in verses 10 to 15. Paul mentions three things that we reap when we give cheerfully to the diaconal fund. The first is this you see here in verse 10. It is a harvest of righteousness. 
Again, the more we've been forgiven, the bigger our hearts. And the bigger our hearts, the more eager we are to remind our brothers and sisters in the Lord of Christ's own goodness to us. This is how Paul had even opened up in uh, the first chapter of this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in all of our afflictions that we might also be able to comfort them. Again, a picture of the gospel. When somebody is in need, somebody is in sorrow, we are uh, called to minister comfort to them with that same level of comfort we have been given when we were afflicted. Here the Lord gives to us that we might give to others, and the Lord gives to others that they might give to us. It is an abundant harvest. This is our second point we see here in verses 11 and 12. It is a harvest that abounds in what? Financial dividends? No, it abounds in thanksgiving to God. God uses us to provide for others in need that they might give God the glory. So giving is a practical way in which gratitude to God multiplies. The praise to God increases. And isn't that our whole goal as the people of God, that more people would give praise to Father, Son, and Spirit? You lose your job. You're not able to uh, make the electric payment for the week. Uh, lights get turned off. Heat gets turned off. I mean, you have to worry about that now. It's September, but another month from now, you get kind of frigid. But then the, the, the deacons come, and they say, we heard about your financial need. Let's help you get you back on your feet person says what? Praise the Lord. See, it's reaping a, a real harvest, and the harvest is one of gratitude. The harvest is one of praise to God. And this is what Paul's getting at here in verses uh, 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 10 to 15. He says, so that as you give to them, they, uh, the, the folks who are suffering from this, this massive famine in Jerusalem might give thanks to God for you, that their love now is drawn more to you, and so they'll start to pray for you, and so perhaps there might come a point down the line where Corinth is in trouble, and guess what? You have friends that you've never even seen face-to-face who are now willing to step up to the plate to care for you if famine hits and comes your way. Notice how even the chapter itself ends. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The nature of giving is so that those in need might learn to give thanks to God. Relief given in times of need attunes our heart to the goodness of God that it might abound to the praise of God. God really provides for his church. And of course, we read the Old Testament, we read the New Testament, we see the supernatural ways in which God has provided for his people. And God does do that at times. And it's not uh, beyond the scope of God's abilities. But what we also find is that God has appointed particular means by which his people can still be provided in times of need. And that appointed means is the church. Again, Christ, having risen on high, has received a kingdom. 
And as king of that kingdom, he has laws that govern what a kingdom of justice and equity looks like. And this is one of the laws that we see for the kingdom of Christ. And the kingdom of Christ is not found in Israel. It's not found in Rome. It is not found in Washington, D.C. or the United States of America. The kingdom of Christ is visibly manifested in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have something a picture of what real righteousness looks like in terms of caring for those not just in spiritual need, but also in physical and material need. This is the appointed means for the people of God. And finally, we see that there, or thirdly, we see that there's one other thing that the Diaconal Relief Fund does, is it strengthens the bond of fellowship among believers. Not just within a congregation, but also across congregations. Uh, you know, we're, it's, we're coming up now that the end of September, if you recall, every November we take a thank offering for the needs of our denomination, uh, for uh, the, the purpose of giving for the needs, not just for this individual congregation, but for everything that's going on in the life of the denomination. This is something that, that transcends uh, congregational boundaries. It's something that transcends ethnic boundaries. It's something that even transcends national boundaries as part of that giving goes to our missions work overseas. This is very practical. This is a biblical implementation of the very thing that Paul is encouraging Corinth to do here in this letter, the very thing that Paul encouraged uh, the Church of Rome to do at the end of uh, the book of Romans. And remember, it's one of the main charges that Paul has been given as the apostle to the Gentiles to ensure that this, this collection for the church in Jerusalem is taken up. It's a massive need in the life of the first generation of the church, and now it lays down an important principle for what the, the church in the 21st century should be doing. Here we have this enrichment principle, a growth in communion, not only with Christ, but also a communion with fellow believers. See, God's grace towards us forms the pattern through which we are also called to walk. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, thou who is rich beyond all splendor for love's sake became poor, so that out of his poverty you might become rich. The incarnation provides the model for how we are to die daily to our own needs and desires and to give to our fellow believers in need, given through the diaconal fund. And this is what I'd like us finally to consider, is to consider Christ. I'm not saying this as a guilt trip. Again, it's one of the, 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 the joys and struggles of uh, uh, expositional preaching. Whatever pops up next in the text is what you have to preach. You can't skip over it. And yet, I hope you recognize that Paul is not saying any of these things here to guilt trip us, but to show us what it looks like to have lives conformed to the image of Christ who gave himself up for us. Who out of his poverty took to himself flesh and blood, a true body and a reasonable soul, bore the curse of the law and bore our sins so that by bearing our debt, we might become heirs of heaven itself. Let us pray.
Gracious God and Father, we do uh, thank you for your word, and as we consider the work of Christ, we ask that this would shape our very lives and all that we do, and caring for those in our own midst of need, we ask in Christ's name, amen.